You are now listening to The Model Health Show with Sean Stevenson. For more, visit themodelhealthshow.com. Welcome to The Model Health Show. This is fitness and nutrition expert Sean Stevenson, and I'm so grateful for you tuning in with me today. On this episode, we're going to be talking about the dynamics between our environment and our health outcomes. We're going to be talking about how your zip code can be impacting your health far more than your genetics. And we have the best person in the world to do it. As a matter of fact, I want to put together this special compilation, this special conversation with somebody who's been one of the biggest influences in my health and also my ability to reach and impact others. Back when I started on this journey about 20 years ago, being in this field now, I'm almost in my 20th anniversary working in the field of health and wellness, I was just ravenously studying everything I can get my hands on. And I came across a lecture from Dr. Mark Hyman. And he was talking about reversing the actual cause of our epidemic of type 2 diabetes rather than just treating the symptoms, you know, with more medication, with metformin, with insulin. What's causing this epidemic to happen in the first place? Now, he's looking at, rather than, again, treating the symptom, addressing the root cause. And that really spoke to me because I'd already transformed my own health from having this so-called incurable arthritic condition of my spine, my bones, and being able to turn that around. My thought process and my awareness started to branch out to other conditions. Like, what else can we fix by addressing the root cause rather than just treating symptoms? And so to hear somebody, a physician, an MD, to have the audacity to say that this condition could be reversed at this time was still on the fringe. And listening to him more, I really start to understand how it all worked and beginning to reverse engineer the condition and helping folks to get educated about how insulin actually worked, how their cells worked, metabolism, how their beta cells in their pancreas were creating the insulin and how they can be damaged or deranged, or how our insulin sensitivity can get deranged, and all these different pieces, and taking these puzzle pieces and putting it together in a wonderful visual for the people that I was working with. But again, that thought process was sparked by Dr. Mark Hyman. And another paradigm-shifting realization that I got from him was a statement that food isn't just food, it's information. Food isn't just food, it's information. So we're talking about biochemical data, right? So even if we break down and look at a flavor in food, what is that? That's chemistry that's creating that specific flavor. And we can isolate and identify what that compound is or that combination of compounds and try to replicate that thing. But that's feeding data to our system and creating a response, right? So we have a cause and effect all based on chemistry. And our biochemistry is going to interact with the chemistry of that food. Our microbiome is going to interact with the microbiome of that food, right? We don't really think about that very often, but we don't just have a gut microbiome. We have a microbiome of our lungs, for example, and you know this is far-reaching. We have a microbiome of our skin, but food itself has its own unique microbiome, microbial tapestry. If we're talking about real food, we're talking about natural food, all right? There's not a microbiome of a snickerdoodle, all right? That's not the same thing, but of an avocado, for example, that microbiome is going to interact with ours. So it's data interacting with data. And so food instantly is telling our system which hormones to produce, which neurotransmitters need to get released, what shifts should take place in our microbial activity, what shifts are taking place with our genetic expression. 
The list goes on and on and on. We have entire fields now of nutrigenetics and nutrigenomics that are looking at how each and every bite of food that we consume, even the smell of certain foods, shifts what's happening with our genes. All right. This is such an incredible insight for us to really take on and start to live life through this lens. And we start to understand how powerful we are to affect change within our own bodies and within our own communities. So really, really excited about this. I didn't want a single person to miss on these conversations. So I put them together in this masterclass interview with one of the leading experts in the field of health and wellness. Now, when speaking about the microbiome, what we most associate this with is our digestive health because the vast majority of our microbes, trillions of microbes are hanging out in our gut. Now, what most people don't realize is just how great, how expansive our epidemics of digestive issues are today. A study published in the journal Gastroenterology determined that approximately 70 million Americans are suffering with digestive issues at this very moment. And this was a few years ago, by the way, when that study was published. It's almost about 10 years later now. So do you think the problem has improved or gotten worse? And you already know the answer to that. So what are some of the simple things that we can do to address this? Obviously, removing the cause, removing the things that damage our gastrointestinal tract, that damage the tapestry of our microbiome, that damage this really, really delicate and intelligent microbial rainforest, really, that we have within our bodies. But also there are things that we can do with our nutrition to improve our microbial diversity, to improve the health of our microbiome. Number one, a simple thing is to increase the diversity of the foods that we're eating, providing more prebiotics for our microbial probiotics so they can proliferate. But that's number one, just simply increasing the diversity of the foods that we're eating. Because even if we're eating healthfully, we can get stuck in a rut and eat a lot of the same foods over and over and over again. I know that that's happened in my life a time or two. But in addition to that, there are some really wonderful things that just take things to another level. For example, a recent study published in the peer-reviewed journal Nature Communications uncovered that a unique compound called Thea Brownin, Thea Brownin, found in the traditional fermented tea called Pu'er, has some remarkable effects on our microbiome. The researchers found that Thea Brownin positively alters our gut microbiota that directly reduces excessive liver cholesterol and liver lipogenesis, the creation of fat within the liver. Another study published in the Journal of Agriculture and Food Chemistry found that pu'er may be able to reverse gut dysbiosis. Again, this is an epidemic right now. Reverse gut dysbiosis by dramatically reducing ratios of potentially harmful bacteria and increasing ratios of beneficial bacteria. All right, so this traditional tea, it's been utilized for thousands, for thousands of years. Is one of the things that's well established now. More and more studies are coming out about pu'er because it's so remarkable that can help to support the health of our microbiome. But please hear me, quality matters. The tea industry is one of the most under-regulated industries out there. There are so many nefarious things coming through in conventional teas out there, ranging from pesticides and toxic molds and microplastics. The list goes on and on. You want to make sure that you're getting it from a reputable place, but not just a reputable place, a place that's taking things to another level. The pu'er that I drink is a fermented pu'er utilizing a patented cold extraction technology 
to retain the nutrients we're really looking for. And also, they're doing a triple toxin screening for one of the highest levels of purity, testing again, make sure there's no pesticides, heavy metals, toxic molds, again, that are common in teas. And this tea is from Peak Life. Go to peaklife.com forward slash model and use the code model to receive an exclusive 10% off. That's P I Q U E L I F E dot com forward slash model. And again, you get 10% off their entire assortment of, again, they have 20 delicious award winning flavors. You get 10% off everything that they carry. Go to peaklife.com forward slash model for 10% off. Now let's get to the Apple Podcast Review of the Week. Another five-star review titled Powerful Conversations by Wendy Nirvana. Thank you. These are powerful and revolutionary conversations and the podcast are helping me understand more and better about human biology, our body, and life. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. That's amazing. I appreciate you so much for leaving that review over on Apple Podcasts. And if you've yet to do so, please pop over to Apple Podcasts and leave a review for the Model Health Show. On that note, let's get to this special compilation with the amazing Dr. Mark Hyman. Dr. Hyman is a 14-time New York Times bestselling author, and the head of strategy and innovation of the Cleveland Clinic, and he's also the board president for clinical affairs for the Institute for Functional Medicine. In this first epic conversation with Dr. Hyman, you're going to hear about what's really going on behind the scenes with our food system. How are so many ultra-processed foods ending up flooding our communities? We're going to talk about the systems behind everything, and he's going to lay down fact after fact after fact, and it's no less than mind-blowing. You're also going to hear about how our food system is impacting many of our broader problems that we're facing as a human species. And we're also going to talk about some of the things going on with the farming of food and the soil, and some of the things that we need to look to, again, that are causative agents behind the situations that we're seeing right now. So a big part of transformation, a big part of achieving a goal is awareness. We need to know what we're dealing with first and foremost, and that's what this very special episode is all about. So let's jump into this special segment from the amazing Dr. Mark Hyman. People need to understand that our food system is the biggest driver of most of the problems on the planet that, that is driving challenges for most of the things that matter most to us. Mm. Our health, our economic ability to thrive, mm. uh, the climate change that's happening, environmental destruction, uh, poverty, violence, depression, poor academic performance, national security, they're all connected by food and no one's told the story. Not only do people not understand that it's all one problem, but they don't understand that there's elegant, simple solutions that can fix all of it. So while it's kind of depressing to think about it, it's also extremely hopeful because we have the power to change this by leveraging policy change, grassroots movements, business innovations, citizen action, all of it is, is so critical for our future. I mean, it's an existential threat. And when you lay it all out and tell the story as one story, yeah. uh, it, it, it all makes sense. So yeah. we, we think of things as separate, right? We think, you know, our economy is one thing. Health is another thing. Climate is another thing. Social justice is another thing. You know, kids' academic performance is another thing. 
the thing that ties them all together, and obviously isn't the only reason for the problems, but is the major reason, yeah. is our food system. Yeah. We tend to compartmentalize things, period. Mm-hmm. You know, even when it comes to our health and our bodies. Yeah. You know, you got somebody for this thing, got somebody for that thing, like we're yeah. separate. Yeah. And you it's functional out, medicine yeah. for everything. <laughs> like <laughs> right. How exactly. to connect the systems view. It's a systems view. Yeah. I think one of the most kind of eye-opening things about the book and about what you're putting out for everybody is the fact that we know now today that food is the number one cause of death. Yeah. In our world today. Yeah. Wow. It's crazy. It is crazy. I mean, it happens so fast. I mean, in 1960, 5% of our population was obese. Now, in most states, it's 40%. That's staggering. Yeah. You know, that's an eight-fold change. An eight- that's obese, not eating. Yeah, that's not, yeah, that's obese. That's yeah. not just a little overweight. Yeah. And, and over the last 40 years, it's happened, and we've seen staggering rates of disease, obesity, diabetes, and all the related complications. And and people just just had it coming out of nowhere and, and we're not really equipped to deal with it. So the reason this book is so important, it sort of says, wait a minute, we need to catch up. We need to stop, take a look around, see the big problems we're facing, and come up with real models to solve it. Yeah, yeah. I mean, 11 million people die every year from eating bad food. I think that's an underestimate yeah. and not eating enough good food, right? It's a Six it's out of two Americans are sick with a chronic illness. One out of two have prediabetes or type 2 diabetes. 75% are overweight. This is all caused by food. Yeah. Food is the biggest cause. It's also the biggest cure for our problems. Yeah, yeah. And this is a global epidemic Global. Now. I mean, you talk per, about that 80% too. of the world's diabetics are in the developing world. <laughs> That's just crazy. Yeah. And they're suffering from malnutrition and obesity and all the problems of this double burden of obesity and malnutrition. Yeah. Let's talk about that specifically because that's really fascinating that we live at a time where there are so many people who are hungry, you know, mm, they're going to bed mm, hungry, mm. but then we have more people than ever who are overweight at the same time. Yeah, we have like over 2, probably 3.2.3 billion people who go to bed overweight and about 800 million, which is a lot, who go to bed hungry, and yet we have more than enough calories to feed 10 billion people on the planet, even today, even yeah. though we have 7 billion. And because we throw out 40% of our food, yeah. we waste it. And the right food isn't getting to the right people in the right places. And too much is getting to the people who don't need it. And you're getting this sort of incredible, uneven uh, problem where, where the amount of calories you produce is probably an extra 300 calories for every man, woman, and child on the planet a day than they need. But yet there's still these disparities. And, and there's a lot of reasons for it. But you know, we have to solve this problem because... Never before. I mean, I remember like seeing a picture of Woodstock recently and looked around the entire picture of like thousands of people. There wasn't one person that was overweight. I saw the Aretha Franklin movie, Amazing Grace, and looked at this African-American church in, I think it was in Oakland, 1970. There wasn't one person who was overweight. And and today, 80% of African-American women are overweight. And their diabetes rates are twice that of whites. Their amputation rates are four times uh, sorry, their kidney failure is four times that of whites, and their amputation rates are three and a half times. So these enormous health disparities are are affecting these populations, and we just we just didn't see we just didn't see this a generation ago. And, and it's like it's like a tsunami that came so fast that everybody was asleep, and now it's like whoa, wait a minute, and people still haven't woken up to it. Yeah, and I want to talk more about the disparity in a moment, but I don't want to go past you mentioned food waste. Mm. Can you talk more about that? Because it's yeah. really eye-opening. Yeah, if people don't think about it. Nobody's for food waste, right? People are against different things, whether we should you know, be using more GMO or not. 
but nobody's for food waste. And we waste 40% of the food that we grow. And it would be, it, we would need the entire land mass of China to grow that food every year. It's $2 trillion food waste, about $1,800 a person in America for every fam, person in America we waste. And uh, it's about a pound a day per person. And that, what happens that waste? First of all, all the inputs that go into it, growing it, the seeds, the energy, the water, the labor, the processing, distributing, marketing, selling, all that is wasted. Refrigeration, everything. And on top of that, when we throw it out, it goes into landfills. Now, people don't realize this, but even if you're a vegan and you're throwing out your scraps and your leftovers, that's going to a landfill and that's creating a massive contribution to climate change. Mm. I mean, if food waste were a country, it would be the third largest emitter of greenhouse gases after the US and China. <laughs> it's like a massive problem. And it's really, it, for, it basically rots and releases methane, which is 25 times more potent a greenhouse gas than carbon dioxide. Yeah. So we, we must solve this food waste problem. And the thing is, we all can do something about it. Yeah. You know, I mean, in San Francisco, when Gavin Newsom was the mayor, he put in a mandatory composting law. So it's mandatory now. You can't throw out your food waste. It has to go in a compost buckets. Just like there's recycling, there's trash, and there's compost. Yeah. And in the airport, there's compost buckets. Um, and it's fantastic. And in, in, in the same thing they did in, in the Massachusetts, they eliminated any ability of a company to throw out their garbage if they if their food waste it was more than a ton a week so places like whole foods and grocery stores and food service companies can't just throw it all out so they're forced to do something with it and they and there's been a great innovation around this is what's so exciting to me about america you got great innovation so dairy farmers were not making much money they realized that they can get this food waste which they can get for free basically they build these anaerobic digesters where they put in the food waste and some manure, like the dairy poop, which is you know a big contributor, again, greenhouse gases, in this big digester that actually produces electricity for 1,500 homes Come on. and makes him an extra $100,000 a year. And those farmers are struggling making less than 1800 minus $1,800 a year. Right? So it's a win, 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 win. And, and you know they're doing this in Europe. There's 17,000 of these anaerobic digesters in Europe. We don't do that, but we could be producing electricity, dealing with food waste, climate change, manure. I mean, it's a sort of a win-win. And and we need to do that on our individual basis yeah. with compost. Even if you live in an apartment, you can have a little compost uh, unit that you can actually buy on Amazon for a few bucks and actually throw your scraps in there. It turns into soil. You can give it away to somebody who's got a garden. Or you can, you know, local compost facilities. And it's just a powerful, simple thing that we can do to end food waste. But it's it's one of the biggest problems we have and thankfully the epa the fda and the usda have banded together under the trump administration one of the few things they've done is really awesome and created an initiative around food waste because again whether you're a republican or democrat nobody's for throwing out more food and creating all these problems yeah it's so important and i love that we give these very actionable items for everybody throughout the book yeah so composting this is something that you know i didn't even really think about yeah. i see it out different places yeah. and also it's addressing one of the other big issues to talk about is our soil and our yes. deficit of oh, soil yeah. talk about that please. okay so uh you know most people think oh you know how do we grow our food where we get it from so it doesn't matter right but it turns out that how we grow our food determines one the quality of the food we eat right the nutrients in it whether it's full of chemicals, pesticides, herbicides, glyphosates, and fertilizer stuff. Um, but also the soil is the biggest carbon sink on the planet. You know, it literally can hold three times the amount of carbon that's been released into the environment, at over a trillion tons of carbon. Mm. And, and the truth is the way we grow food 
industrial monocrops, commodities, soy, wheat, corn has depleted our soil through over-tilling, soil erosion, intensive chemical use, which destroys the organic matter, the life of the soil, and turn into dirt, which is lifeless. And the soil that, that we've lost is one-third of all our topsoil in the, in the last 150 years. And Something about, that took millions of years to million, make. Billions, I don't know, millions. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I mean, it, it just in natural processes, it takes about, I think, a thousand years to create like three centimeters of topsoil. Right? So it's like a slow process. With animals, we can actually do it much faster. But, but when you think about it, 30 to 40% of all greenhouse gases up in the environment that are causing climate change are the result of damage to our soils. That's staggering. We think it's fossil fuels. We think it's cars and planes. No, it's dirt. And we actually know that we can solve this problem by fixing soil. Uh, you know, soil is the biggest carbon sink on the planet, and, it, and we can use this incredible carbon capture technology that works better than any technology currently invented that's available everywhere in the world it's free mm. it drives huge amounts of carbon capture more than all the rainforests on the planet and all the trees on the planet and it's called photosynthesis yeah. <laughs> and essentially it's this ancient technology where plants breathe carbon dioxide right they they release oxygen in the atmosphere which is what we breathe but they they actually in this beautiful cycle, it's like a beautiful symbiotic cycle, they breathe in carbon dioxide, it goes into the plants, into the roots, into the soil, and puts all this organic matter in the soil, feeds the fungi, feeds the bacteria, creates this incredibly rich nutrient-dense soil, allows the plants to extract the nutrients from the soil. Mm -hmm. Because if you, if you have dead soil and you throw in fertilizer, it can't extract the nutrients. Our, even your best organic broccoli, if it's not grown in rich organic soil, is actually got 50% less nutrients than it did 50 years ago. Yeah. So you could be eating whole foods, plant-based foods. They're not full of zinc and selenium and iron and magnesium and all the nutrients that come from the soil because the, the microbiology of the soil is what helps to extract those nutrients so the plants can consume them right. and we can eat them. But if there's, if there's no organic matter, we can't do that. And the, the other thing is when you... When you do that, you can literally draw down enough carbon to save us from climate change. The UN estimated that that if we just spent $300 billion over the next few years, which is about the 60-day spend on military spending globally, just two months of military spending, we could slow down climate change and give us 20 more years to figure it out because mm -hmm. it draws down that much carbon if we took just 2 million of the 5 million degraded hectares around the world and turn it into regenerative agriculture, which, which I can explain more. But regenerative agriculture essentially is a way of building soil. Yeah, soil is a solution. It is, soil, not oil. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's yeah. unbelievable, and it, and, it, and it means we need to use less chemicals or none. Fertili it actually makes its own fertilizer. Mm -hmm. It holds water, right? So we're seeing all these droughts and floods and flooded farmlands. And why is that? Because the soil is so crappy, it can't hold water. But if you have organic matter in the soil, it can hold 27,000 gallons per acre for every 1% organic matter, which means that if you built up a lot of organic matter, you can literally prevent damage from floods and droughts and all these problems that we're seeing all over the world that are actually threatening our food supply. Yeah. I want to talk more about that because I think that there was two really important words. There's a difference between dirt and soil. Soil, yes. The soil is that complex entity yeah. that you just described. Yeah. But the question is, how did we get here? How did we lose so much of the soil? Yeah. And one of the things you highlight, I've talked about this a couple of times, but, you know, the monocropping. Yes. Just, there's been such yes. a loss of our diversity of food. Yeah. So so what, what's happened is that we, 
we had good intentions. You know, we needed to grow more food, feed hungry people. So we got really good at, at industrial production of starchy calories, wheat, corn, soy, and so forth. And that's industrial monocrop in chemical intensive agriculture. So we had big tractors. I mean, we just didn't know the consequences of that. When we started, it was all based on good intentions. And now it's actually killing us. And the monocrops, basically the way these farms work is the methods they used, the tilling, which turns over the soil, causes soil erosion, disrupts the organic matter in the soil, disrupts all the complex life in the soil, kills it essentially, is a huge contributor. Not using cover crops, so leaving ground bare and fallow, also causes more soil erosion and doesn't allow nutrients to be put back in the soil. Crop rotations are important to actually yeah. feed the soil different things with so different plants. For example, certain plants like the nitrogen fixing plants, like the legumes and so forth, they'll put nitrogen back in the soil, so you don't need nitrogen fertilizer. And other, other plants put other nutrients in the soil. And you use, uh, so crop rotations, cover crops, no-tilling methods, and then animals. Now, whether you're a vegan or you eat meat, doesn't matter. You absolutely need animals to restore soil. How we got 50 feet of topsoil in America was we had literally tens of millions of ruminants, buffalo, elk, antelope, deer, grazing around and pooping and peeing and digging up, and they built up 50 feet of topsoil. They weren't causing climate change. There were way more ruminants then than there are factory farm cows now. It's the way we're doing it, yeah. right? So we're growing all this food for these animals, we're destroying the soil, and we're ending up with incredibly lifeless soil. And when you need have lifeless soil, you need way more inputs. Yeah. So we've killed the soil so much that we need, the fertilizers are two thirds as effective and we have been using seven times more fertilizer to get the same results because it's like, you know, beating, you know, trying to get blood out of a stone. Mm. And, 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 you know, dirt doesn't hold water. It doesn't provide uh, a rich microbial life that actually helps the plants become more nutritious. It doesn't hold carbon, which means, you know, it contributes to climate change. So while damage to the soil is one of the biggest contributors to climate change, it also can suck out the carbon from the environment better than anything else. And, and there's so much degraded land, 5 million hectares of degraded land around the world that we can convert into regenerative lands. Lands that can't be used to grow vegetables. Even if you're a vegan, you know, you can't grow plants on certain land. And the animals upcycle the nutrients and produce incredibly nutrient dense food and help restore climate and fix the soil. And, and you know, there's a great example of this. There's a guy named Gabe Brown from North Dakota who's a farmer whose farm was destroyed by hail and bad weather and he was gonna go bankrupt and he started reading about these principles and said he was gonna try it. And since he's tried it on his 5,000 acres in North Dakota, he's created a complex ecosystem on his farm, not a monocrop, single plant, or one or two plants like corn and soy. He says he's built 29 inches of soil he uses no inputs. He actually makes his own fertilizer. He produces better quality food. He's more resilient to climate stress and weather, mm -hmm. floods and droughts and so forth, because the soil is so rich, can hold so much water. And he says he makes 20 times the profit of his neighbor. Unbelievable. Which is staggering. So yeah. it's good for him, good for the planet. And there's, and there's businesses that are figuring this out. You know, it's not a hippie fad and it can be scaled. It's estimated that we could literally produce twice as many cattle that way as we can through factory farms right now. Yeah. And, and uh, there's, there's private equity companies like Farmland LP, which essentially buys up conventional farms, converts them to regenerative farms, and takes them from single digit profits to 
double-digit profits. Their, their first fund was had a 67% return. Like, I'd like to invest in that. Yeah, that's You know, that's like a crazy of. amount of return. And there's something called ecosystem services. So humans are really good at using up natural capital, natural resources. And we use about $125 trillion a year of natural resources from the earth. We basically steal it. <laughs> and we don't give it back. And 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 we destroy the soil, we destroy the water, we you know take down the trees, all that stuff. The the way of farming with regenerative farming, which will fix the quality of the food, the obesity, the chronic disease, the economic issue, the climate issues, the environmental biodiversity loss, all of it gets fixed by that. Uh, it actually adds 21 in this one little uh, small bunch of farms. They did added 21 million dollars of ecosystem benefit or services to the environment, whereas the conventional farms cost $8 million. And, and there, are, there are now countries like Costa Rica that are paying farmers to put carbon in the soil, to conserve water, to actually increase biodiversity. And I think that's what's going to have to happen in this country. We're going to have to incentivize farmers to do the right thing. Yeah. So it makes it more profitable and, and everybody wins. Yeah, I love that. And you talk about, because for business sake, it's going to look at what's the bottom line, yeah. you know, moving profits. It's an economic and you issue. pointed out so many times in the book and how people can make money. But one of the things that <laughs> one of the things that's really important that I want everybody to really imbibe is this um, biodiversity, you yeah. know, because we go to a grocery store and it looks like there's all these different foods, yeah. but it's really a lot of the right same, now, like 90% yeah. of the stuff on store shelves is made from like the same 12 foods. Yes. Right. Exactly. So we got like to sell 12, the same 12 yeah. plants and five animal species, whereas I think we've yeah. lost yeah. so much over the last 100 years of our diversity. I mean, we, we, we used to eat 800 species of plants. I mean, at the turn of the century, there were hundreds and hundreds of apple varieties, right, in America. Uh, complex different grains, many, many, many different complex livestock, heirloom breeds, right? Now we've lost 90% of our edible plant species, half of all our livestock species, and 75% of pollinators, like butterflies, and bees, bees, which we can't grow food if we don't have that. Einstein said, if we lose our bees, we have four years left to live, you know, which is pretty scary. And why is that happening? Well, a lot of reasons, because of the consolidation of seed production with seed monopoly companies like Bayer, Monsanto, ChemChina, Syngenta, and so are BASF. Um, but also because, you know, we are destroying the biodiversity through how we grow food. The chemical intensive agriculture destroys the soil microbiology, it, it actually leads to loss of pollinators because pesticides aren't selective, right? They'll kill yeah. insects of all kinds. Uh, and, uh, you know, we've, we've hybridized animals to so these really productive breeds like cows, for example. I mean, look, if you have an heirloom grass-finished cow, regeneratively raised cow, which is how they all were, like this is how it used to be, right? It's, it's actually got a different form of, of, of nutrients in it that are much better for you, like CLA, which is a great anti-inflammatory, anti-cancer, metabolism-boosting fat. It has more antioxidants, more minerals, more nutrients, less bad fats. But also, you know, the dairy, for example, you know, we used to have A2 casein cows, which are the heirloom cows. You travel around the world, you see all these funny-looking cows. We have the same-looking cow. Every cow looks the same here. They're all like white and black Holstein cows that produce the same kind of milk. But it's inflammatory. It's been hybridized in a way that creates a lot of problems for people. And so we, we, we aren't eating things in a way that are, are the best quality. I mean, the things have been bred for, you know, stability, transport, not for taste, not for nutrient density. Uh, you know, my friend Dan Barber is, a, is an incredible uh, chef. And he's like, why can't we breed plants for flavor? Because nobody's bred for, they bred for yield. They're bred for 
pest resistance, they're bred for shipping, they're bred mm -hmm. for, but nobody's like, how about for nutrients? I mean, right. when there's flavor, that's where the nutrients are, right? Because right? that's, that's what, an indicator. It's an indicator, right? The phytochemicals and all. And so you create like, you know, honey nut squash, for example, which is instead of a, a sort of soggy, mostly water, butternut squash is like incredibly flavorful, rich thing. And so, you know, we, we actually can start to bring back some of these plants. Mm, I love that. I love and, that. And there's a whole, there's seed vaults where we can, we can resurrect these things that are more local location and climate specific. And a friend of mine discovered by accident, he, he wanted to get some new kind of crops growing, he was working with a farmer and the USDA sent him by accident this packet of, of uh, seeds. And he's like, what are these seeds? It's like four, two, one, three, six, whatever, whatever. And he's like, oh yeah, these are the Himalayan buckwheat. They're incredibly, mm. you know, strong plants, but they're among the most nutrient dense food on the planet. They're very low in starch, high in protein, full of phytochemicals, vitamins and minerals. They grow in incredibly tough conditions. I mean, these are the kinds of things we should be eating. Yeah, and that diversity in the soil is also indicator number one, like you mentioned, of the nutrients that we get. Yeah. But I think it's a good parallel to the microbiome diversity for ourselves that yeah. we're Yeah, in fact, there's amazing research on how our own microbiome and the microbiome of the soil are connected and dependent on each other, right? So, you know, there's this, people write this book called Eat Dirt, you know, for example, it's like, yeah, I mean, I think we, we used to have much more intimate contact with our natural environment, live outside, you know, have dirty fingers when we ate, I mean, you know, it wasn't, there wasn't, uh, you know, uh, Purell, you know, everywhere. Right, walking out of any door. <laughs> yeah, and it's like, uh, and I, I think it's, uh, it's so important and it screwed up our immune system. And so there's so much, uh, incredible potential for, you know, getting a better health for ourselves through taking care of the soil. It's all one system. In fact, there's a great book I read when I was like 19 called The Soil and Health, written by Sir Albert Howard, who was the father of organic agriculture in like 1947. And he says that the whole, um, the whole problem of health in, you know, plant, animal, you know, soil and humans is one great subject. It's all one problem, right? My question always goes to how did this happen? Like, why is this allowed? You know, we know that many pesticides, insecticides, these are estrogenic, neurogenic. These are things that are proven to have problems once yeah, we consume sure. them. And yeah. also missing on the diversity in our foods, the, the processed foods that we have. Why is it that the, how does our, happen? our protection or the FDA why is it that the FDA has allowed this to happen? Well, like I said, a lot of these were, were started out as good intentions and had great effects. They, they reduced you know, hunger, they reduced starvation, they proved a lot of you know, calorie-dense, starchy foods, um, but produced them in a way that's had all these bad consequences. And, and what happened then is these companies got so big you know, there used to be like a hundred seed companies. Now there's four that control 60% of our seeds. Problem. You know, there used to be like a hundred of food companies. Now there's like nine that own all the other ones. You know, there used to be, you know, lots of fertilizer companies. Now there's like half a dozen that control all the 400 billion pounds of fertilizer made every year. Uh, so there's a big consolidation and these have enormous power. I mean, it's a $15 trillion industry. It's the number one business sector in the world. It's about 17% of our global economy. And it's controlled by a few dozen CEOs that are, you know, committed to protecting their shareholder value yeah. and selling more stuff. I mean, the way Coca-Cola makes more money is selling more Coke. Yeah. You know, maybe they're selling more water and trying to diversify their products and all that's great. But it's 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 a problem. And so there's an enormous amount of lobbying and influence. Uh, and, and, and the way the food company controls the narrative is through multiple strategies that I outline in the book. One, 
they corrupt science. So they fund 12 times as much science as, as funded by the government. And it's like Gatorade, oh, it's good for you. And let's fund it by Pepsi, you know, and Coca-Cola doesn't cause obesity, funded by Coca-Cola. Sugar's not a problem, funded by the coalition of, you know, big food companies. Uh, it it co-ops scientists um, in different ways by the, funding their professional associations, the American Heart Association, the American mm. Diabetes Association, Academy of Nutrition Dietetics, all are funded in part by the food industry yeah. and by the ag industry. And so they're, they're, they're not actually completely independent. They shouldn't be making guidelines and recommendations. And then you have front groups that they create to confuse the public, like the American Council on Science and Health, which essentially says that GMO is fine, that pesticides are not harmful, that smoking is okay, and high fructose corn syrup is good for you. I mean, it's kind of almost ridiculous, but they, they present themselves as this independent group. When you look at who's funding them, it's all big food. So you've got all these front groups, and then they co-op social groups like the NAACP and Hispanic Federation are funded in part by the food industry, which is why those groups who are the most targeted and affected by the food industry and the soda and processed food are the ones who are opposing soda taxes and opposing food reforms, you know, mm. because uh, of how they're funded. Yeah. Now, I, where I spoke once, uh, I was with Bernice King, Martin Luther King's daughter in Atlanta, and I wanted to present this movie, Fed Up at the King Center, which is all about how sugar and food was causing all this obesity in kids and stuff. And, and uh, she was all into it. You know, she says, nonviolence means nonviolence to ourselves. And, and a few days later, I got a call. We can't show the film. I'm like, why? She says, well, because Coca-Cola funds the King Center in Atlanta. <laughs> they, they, gave a, they gave a million dollars in the Super Bowl to uh, create free admission to the you know, Social Justice Human Rights uh, Civil Rights uh, Museum in, in Atlanta. It's like, yeah. they know what they're doing. And Absolutely. then on top of that, there's 187 lobbyists for every member of Congress. So they control science, they control public health groups, they control social groups, they fund research, and they control politics. So yeah. 187 lobbyists from every member of Congress. Just on the anti-GMO labeling law, they, they fought that, and, and it was $192 million in one year that these, co these companies spent to oppose that one piece of legislation. They spent $500, billion, $500 million on the Farm Bill, 600 lobby groups. I mean, they have so much power. And, and I remember sitting on a boat with a senator this summer in a sailboat, and we had two hours just chat. And, you know, I started laying all this out for him, and he was like, his jaw was open. He just didn't understand this because he doesn't get educated by people like me. He gets educated by the food industry. Right. You know, it's like of pharma course. companies. They educate doctors on, you know, I call it continuing pharmaceutical education instead right. of medical education. So this is why we have this problem. Yeah. And then we have policies that are so contradictory. You know, we have food stamps where we're basically providing 75% of the food stamps, which is a lot of money, about 75 billion a year. It's for junk food, and 10% of that is for soda, about 7 billion a year, about 30 billion servings to the poor every year of soda. Uh, we have dietary guidelines that are corrupted because now the Trump administration says we can't look at any research on ultra-processed foods. We can't actually look at research before 2000. We can't look at research from independent scientists, only the USDA. I mean, put all these crazy restrictions on what you can look at, which kind of waters down the guidelines. You know, we have school lunch program. Obama tried to improve school lunches, and he did through the... Hang Healthy Hunger Free Kids Act, but then Trump has just rolled it all back. And now kids can, you know, have pizza as a vegetable, French fries are vegetable, ketchup is a vegetable. It's, it's terrible. Well, we're talking about a subject matter that matters a lot to me when we're talking about our kids mm. and how the food system is really preying on kids yes. and how they're 
one of the things that you highlight is how they're getting into the food system in and of itself. And I just want to share this from your book. You noted that about 80% of our schools have contracts with soda companies. Yep. And, what? And, and, and 50% have brand name junk food, fast food in their cafeteria. So it's, you know, it's McDonald's Monday and Taco Bell Tuesday yep. and Wendy's Wednesday. And it's like, it's bad. Yep. And these kids are struggling in this country. We, we see 40% of kids overweight. We see one in 10 kids with ADD. We see behavioral issues. I mean, the amount of medications that are prescribed to children today is just frightening. And when when I was growing up, I'm 60 years old, there was that one troubled kid in the class. There was that one girl who was a little overweight, you know, and that was it. Yeah. And now it's the norm. Uniform, yeah. And, and what's happened is the food has changed so much that it's affecting kids' cognitive development and their performance. We know that kids who are in low socioeconomic groups with poor diets, their brains are 10% smaller, their IQs are seven points lower, which is a lot. And they're not functioning well in school. We see academic achievement gaps. There's something called the achievement gap, which is that kids who have struggles with health or diet or food, they do poorly. They earn less money when they grow up. They're more, less likely to go to college. I mean, I, I just went to one of the really underserved areas in Cleveland the other day and met with the, the school superintendent and went through the school it was a big school and it was mostly african-american hispanic kids uh and one percent he told me one percent of these kids are eligible to go to college when they graduate high school 40 percent absenteeism rate the obesity rate's staggering i walked down the hall this riverweight girl walking down the hall with you know double fisting it one giant 32 ounce slushy another 32 ounce soda and it was just the norm there i went into the kitchen and i pointed out to him where can you cook food here? There's deep fryers, there's reheating ovens, microwaves, that's it. So how do you actually have real food? And and what's great about what's happening in America today is there's innovation all over around this. There's, there's mothers and activists and people who are changing the school system. There's groups like Conscious Kitchen that create templates for schools to transform their schools to make food that tastes good, designed by top chefs, within the nutrition school guidelines, within the budget. So it doesn't have to be expensive and kids will eat it. And I think that's what's really exciting now. We don't have to have this. And when you change diets for kids, they do better in school. There's less behavioral issues, less violence, less aggression, less conflict, less likely to go to jail. Yeah, yeah. And that's the thing we don't think about. We have this, we have this very strong uh, approach of victim blaming in our culture, which you know, instead of looking at the structure around things, how did this get created? Mm. And you talk about this in the book very eloquently, and we talked before the show that I'm doing something, I'm working on a project yeah. that's very big along the same lines. And when you outline this one particular study in the book, you noted that only about 5% of African-Americans are getting adequate nutrition. Yeah. And it just like, I had to hold back the tears. I, like, I had to just sit there for a moment with that mm -hmm. and just realize that there's this structure, this concept that you're bringing to light called um, structural violence. Structural violence. Yeah. Structural violence. Talk about that. So, uh, Sean, when I uh, saw the earthquake happen in Haiti, I, I had just finished reading this book called Mountains Beyond Mountains by a guy named Paul Farmer, who was in Haiti uh, for 30 years after medical school as a doctor. And, and everybody had given up on this country because it was so corrupt. There was so much poverty. Uh, and there was so much disease, and there was TB and AIDS were rampant in Haiti. And all the public health groups, it's too hard to deal with these people. They're, they, don't, they're, 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 they can't take these medications on time and their schedule. And, 
and he sort of he he went down there and he fixed it. He said it's not about uh, you know these people having a medical problem. It's about the social, economic, and political conditions that drive disease. He called that structural violence. So what is the environment in which they live? Why are they so poor? How do we help them? So he basically created a model where he addressed this by creating community health workers, neighbors who helped each other take the drugs, make sure they got their health stuff done. And, and he was able to solve TB and AIDS in one of the worst places on the planet. It's the second poorest country in the world, uh, you know, in the, and the worst in the Western Hemisphere where people, most half the country lives on less than a dollar a day. He was able to deal with some of these structural issues, the social environment issues. And we know, we call these social determinants of health in this country. And, and your zip code is more important determinant of your health than your genetic code. In, 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 in low socioeconomic areas, your life expectancy may be 20 years less or 30 years less. If you're poor African-American and living in a you know, tough area, you know, your health is at risk, your life expectancy yeah. is dramatically lower. I mean, it's like the developing world here in the United States. And, and your zip code is a bigger determinant of your health. Uh, and it's, it's all the factors that drive that, whether you have access to food, whether you're, what your education is, whether you can walk in the streets or not because it's dangerous. You know, all these things play a huge role, your, your lack of education about what's healthy to eat or not. Just to play the, the objective, you know, kind of devil's advocate, yeah. when people see that, because if I'm just looking at it from an outside perspective, it's just like, well, why don't you move? Or yeah. why don't you guys clean up your community? And not understanding that, you know, I grew up... So a good example is when I met my wife, I was living in Ferguson, Missouri. I go out my door of the apartment complex. There's a liquor store immediately right across the street. And then as I go down the street, half a block, there's another liquor store. There's a Chinese food restaurant. Not the good kind. There's yeah, like bad. the bulletproof glass kind. Yeah, yeah, right. And then there's Papa John's, Domino's, yeah. Dairy Queen. Yeah. And then I go down one other block, Krispy Kreme, McDonald's, yeah. Burger King, yeah. Yeah. another Chinese food place, another liquor store. Not an store. accident. You look at the concentration here's the thing. of these. Yeah. I didn't know that there was a difference. Yeah. I just thought it was food. I didn't know that healthy food was a thing. Yeah. It was a lack of exposure. Yeah, I think, you know, people are often judgmental and they go, well, people just know what to do. They're not doing it. They want, they don't really want to. They're lazy. Why don't they just, you know, get themselves together? It's just not like that. Yeah. I, I think, you know, people just don't know about the basics of nutrition. They're not taught in schools. They have no education. And the worst part about it is they're targeted. They're micro-targeted by the food industry. How so? When you look, for example, at the targeting of ads, yeah. they're targeted to African-Americans. They're targeted Hispanics. Uh, the advertising for, for example, soda on the day the food stamps come out in, in these poor neighborhoods is much higher. They put more of these junk food places and fast food places in poor neighborhoods. It's not an accident. It's, it's actually by design. Uh, and they hire celebrities, you know, Latino, African-American celebrities to promote all this junk. I mean, you think, you think LeBron James drinks Sprite? Right. <laughs> I don't At think halftime. so. He, let me get that Sprite. So. No, and I know, and yeah. I'm involved with that. I think they put Gatorade in this. They actually don't drink it. They have the yeah. Gatorade bucket filled with another liquid. Yeah. And I know this for a fact because I have friends who own sports teams and they tell me that's what they do. They have yeah. contracts with Pepsi and they have to put this out there, you know, so you can see it on TV, but it's actually not what's in the bucket. Yeah. So I think, I think you know, we see, you know, African-American kids drink twice as much soda as white kids because they're targeted. And, and, they, and the advertising, they see far more advertising for this on their media channels. And it's, Yeah, you it's, note it in the book yeah. that black teens viewed 119% more junk food related ads, mostly for soda and candy, than uh, white teens. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, the health disparities are not an accident. And yeah. I think, like again, they, they co-opt social groups like black and Hispanic groups and other groups 
and they they are they're so deliberate about it and and unfortunately it, it it's it's this perpetual cycle that happens and then you know it's tough for these families i, mean, I remember a girl in cleveland i met she was going to the fort cayuga county community health um uh, college there and uh, they were studying food and you know, cooking and they wanted to pull themselves up and they were from really tough neighborhoods should her mother i mean her her relatives were all having amputations they had diabetes you know they were just you know really struggling and and she literally had to have her mother take two different buses to go for an hour to go get an hour each way to go get vegetables for the family if she wanted to eat vegetables meanwhile they had all the processed food they want the little debbies the sodas the drinks they don't even have like soda it's like colored water i mean it's like you know neon green neon blue neon red sugary liquid that they buy in these plastic containers full of phthalates that are you know pennies for you know a drink and uh, and it's killing them and being in this situation um you know even just growing up having food stamps and now you know the snap program but we also had WIC as well women infants and children yeah and so we'd get the you know uh, like skim milk yeah and we get king vitamin cereal not yeah. like you know the stuff we really wanted but you know, uh, white bread. We get some of these kind of basics, but we were just being continuing with the malnutrition, and that's yeah. one of the things that you highlight as well. Because there are people who are, and my, my most of my family's obese or overweight. Yeah. And, but yet they're also at the same time malnutritioned. So yes. how is that even possible? Yeah. Well, we have too many calories and too few nutrients in our food. Yeah. Right. I mean. Coca-Cola has a lot of calories, but no nutrients, right? Broccoli has a lot of nutrients, but no calories, right? So we are eating a nutrient-poor diet, and unfortunately, um, those abundance of nutrient-poor calories leads to malnutrition. When you look at obesity, these patients are the most nutrient deficient. They're low in vitamin D, they're low in magnesium, they're low in zinc, they're low in folate, they're low in so many nutrients that we depend on for every biochemical reaction in our body. People understand that you can be obese and malnourished. And then people want to eat more. You know, there's, there's a medical condition called pica, which is where kids will eat dirt if they're iron deficient, right? We look for nutrients because we're starving and our bodies crave those things. So we keep eating more and more food, trying to get more and more nutrients, but they're not there. So we just keep eating more food and get fatter and fatter and fatter. Again, the first step in fixing these issues is awareness. That's the first domino. Now, with that said, what do we do to start to address this? We need to, number one, vote with our dollars. We vote every time for the food system we're going to have when we make a purchase for food. And so investing in quality, investing in real food, it starts to shift the dynamic of what food manufacturers are going to be providing for us. So voting with our dollars, but also voting with our votes. So we're talking about demanding changes in legislation. None of this stuff could happen without friendly policies from government regulations that allow food manufacturers, ultra-processed food manufacturers, to flood our communities with processed foods, for them to basically run all these experiments with all these artificial foods with human brains and human bodies, and also the malicious marketing mainly aimed at our children. These are all issues that are enabled by government regulations. A lot of these things that are happening through our television, through our media with processed food, advertising, doesn't happen in other countries, all right? And this is one of the crazy things about living here in the United States, that freedom of speech 
can be utilized in very manipulative ways, right? So we want to maintain our freedom of speech, but at the same time have honesty and integrity behind that, especially if it's getting top billing. And for many people, in many instances, it's the only billing, it's the only information that they're getting access to. So to change that, we have to demand it. When you vote for the next person, whether it's a city council, whether it's a mayor, whether it's a governor, whatever the case might be, ask them, demand, what are they going to do about food and feeding our communities, right? What changes are they going to make to reduce the amount of access that processed food companies have to our children, right? So these are things that, again, we have to vote for. We have to demand the issue because a lot of these times, these are not people that are just altruistic and wanting to change the world. These are popularity contests. And they're going to do what's popular in the minds of their constituents, in the mind of the people in the community that they're trying to get the votes for. If we say food is important, if we say reducing access of processed food to our children is a, a must, then they'll fall in line. Period. End of story. So we have to vote with our dollars and vote with our votes. But also we have to understand that change starts within our own homes. That's where we have the most power over right now. So making sure that we're investing in high quality food to the best of our ability, you know, finding deals where we can, especially if we're operating on a budget, going to farmer's markets, you know, being able to utilize co-ops, maybe even growing some of our own food. There's so many different options that we can engage in, but also supporting companies that are doing things the right way and being able to leverage that. And so a couple of companies that I'm getting a lot of my family's food from is Wild Pastures, and they're giving away right now 20% off of every box of food that they carry for a lifetime. It's a lifetime deal. And you get an additional $15 off right now as well. It's a limited time deal. So definitely check them out at Wild Pastures. And they are providing for farms that are truly utilizing regenerative farming practices. That is the bare minimum. That's the bar that is set for what you're getting from Wild Pastures. Right, grass-fed, pasture-raised, but also regenerative farming practices is the mandate. And so go to wildpastures.com forward slash model. Again, you get 20% off of every box that they carry. You want to check out these incredible boxes. 20% off for a lifetime right now at wildpastures.com forward slash model. Plus, again, a $15 off your purchase limited time special. Go to wildpastures.com forward slash model. That's W-I-L-D-P-A-S-T-U-R-E-S dot com forward slash model. And also coupled with their sister company, their brother from another mother company, Paleo Valley. This is where I get a lot of my supplements from. No binders, no fillers, organic, processed, prepared, and formulated the right way. I love their Essential C Complex that features three of the most Dense sources of vitamin C ever discovered, camu camu berry, amla berry, and acerola cherry, and also their turmeric complex as well. Absolutely love those. And even here at my studio, my team, we've got their bars, the meat sticks here at the studio all the time. Go to paleovalley.com forward slash model, get 15% off everything that they carry over there. All right, so two wonderful resources and two companies that are proactively stepping up and putting their money and their mission where their mouth is and investing in regenerative farming practices, investing in community wellness. All right. So 
That's what it's all about, voting with our dollar, but also change starts within our own household. Next up, in another powerful conversation that I had with Dr. Mark Hyman, you're going to be hearing about some of the freaky deaky ways that processed food companies are manipulating our taste buds. Right again, freaky deaky with our taste buds and not in the way that you want. And you're also going to hear with all of this information that we're getting, what the heck should we eat? All right, so let's jump into this next conversation with the amazing Dr. Mark Hyman. You mentioned in the book that a top executive at Pepsi told you how excited he was that they had learned how to grow and harvest human taste buds in a lab. First of yeah. all, why did Pepsi let you in? Don't they know who, who you are? Second of all, what's up with this? This is kind of like some creepy, futuristic yeah. stuff here. Well, Pepsi has a, a whole meme. They go, well, we, there's food that's good for you, and there's food that's fun for you. Mm. Now, what they mean by fun is literally fun in the sense of like an addictive party drug. Because wow. the foods yeah. that they produce are designed to create addiction and to hijack your brain chemistry and your metabolism and your taste buds. In fact, I met with the vice chair of Pepsi, nice guy, smart guy. He was the head of the Mayo Clinic Endocrinology, which is, you know, no shabby job before right. he got the job at, 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 uh, at Pepsi. He's also a diabetic. And uh, he was sitting at dinner with me and he was eating, you know, pasta, bread, desserts, sugar. And I'm like, what are you doing? You're diabetic. He says, no, no, if I take my medications and I run and I jog, I'm fine. And I'm like, well, let me get this straight. Is, is 1,800 calories of Pepsi the same as 1,800 calories of almonds or broccoli? He goes, yes. And I'm like, well, how does that make sense even intuitively, right? <clears throat> we know now that all calories are not the same. So they have a very clear view that all calories are the same. So it doesn't matter if they're Coca-Cola or Pepsi calories or Dorito calories, as long as you don't eat too many and you exercise, you lose weight. And that is one of the biggest myths out there. Eat less, exercise more, will cause weight loss is just simply wrong. It's the quality of the food, not how much you eat that matters. Right. And, then he, and then he said, Mark, guess what? You know, We got this Westchester lab, we've harvested taste buds. We're actually going to create models where we can stimulate those taste buds and see how to maximize Instead of create pleasure, and it's like I'm like, whoa! You don't want to be telling me that. He says, "Come visit." I'm like, yeah, but you know, you don't. There's something called social media. You don't want me. You don't want me like advertising this stuff for you. And I was like, and he, he was really sincere about it, right. and he really felt this was a good thing. But when we look at you know the the data on this, it's frightening. There's a guy named Michael Moss who wrote a book called Salt, Sugar, and Fat about uh, the food industry, and he interviewed 300 food industry executives, and and scientists, and people who work for the food industry. And he, he found that internally they have things called taste institutes where they hire craving experts. These are scientists designed to create addiction that know how to use chemicals to alter your brain chemistry to create the, what we call the bliss point of food. And then they talk about heavy users. They want to create heavy users. So rather than getting someone like me to drink soda, they're going to go to the people who are already using and get them to be use more. Instead of drinking a liter of soda, they want them to drink two liters of soda a day. And they target the poor and the minorities and they're, they're, you know, they seem like good actors and corporate social responsibility, but it's all a big charade to sell more products to, and privatize the profits and socialize the cost by all the fallout from consuming those foods on health, on, on, on our economy, on our agriculture. So it's really kind of a mess. And I think people don't understand the implications of the food they're eating. And it's not just a personal choice. They're having, with every bite of food they're taking, they're impacting our soil, our water, our environment, climate change, their health, the economy, 
our social structures, poverty, violence, everything mm. is connected to the food we eat. You know, this is, first of all, this is messed up, but also it's kind of inspiring <laughs> at the same time. You know, Mark, it was probably 10 years ago, uh, I was listening to a lecture that you did, and I, I didn't share this with you before, but you're the first person I heard use this term, and it struck me, like it literally just- What did I say? No, this is, this is incredible, and I've, and I've shared this statement many times, is that food isn't just food, it's information. Yeah. Right. Food isn't yeah. just food is information. And so right. we've got scientists who are world class, some of the smartest people around who are working on finding a way that when you bring in this particular data from a processed food, from soda and things like that, mm -hmm. to maximize the response and the addictive response yeah. in yeah. the body to get you to eat more yeah. of this food and like be masterful because it's not even real. That's the thing. It's not even real food. So I want to talk now about. You mentioned earlier that, you know, calories are not created equal, you know, and what we're looking at here is what is this calorie? Let's, let's take the comparison of uh, broccoli and Doritos, right? Yeah. This is going to impact your body very differently if it's 300 calories of each. And why is Ooh. that? What is the main component behind the scenes? Why are they different in how they affect us? Well, what we now know is that every time you take a bite of food, it affects your hormones your brain chemistry, your metabolism, your gut flora, your gene expression, your immune system, right? And it's not the calories that do that per se, it's the quality of the information in the food. Right. So you can turn on all the signals for health and disease by eating a Dorito, same calories, you're gonna eat, you're turn on all the signals for health and healing eating let's say broccoli or almonds. And it's a very different effect. For example, let's just take like a, a great example of like a, a big gulp, right? A big gulp is 750 calories. It's got 46, oh no, it's got, I think, I don't know, ridiculous amounts of sugar, like 70 something grams of sugar. Um, it has no fiber. When you consume it, it causes your liver to become inflamed. It causes your triglycerides to go up, your HDLs go down, your body to produce insulin, it stores belly fat, it lowers your testosterone, it makes you hungry, it loses, causes you to lose muscle, it increases stress hormones. All these things are happening dynamically when you consume a big gulp. If you have 750 calories of, of broccoli, that's 21 cups of broccoli. I mean, good luck if you can eat 21 cups of broccoli. <laughs> it's right. got you know 35 grams of fiber, it's got no sugar, it doesn't affect your body in the same way. It doesn't turn on insulin. It doesn't make you have a fatty liver. It doesn't screw up your cholesterol. It doesn't lower your hormones. It actually increases detoxification, prevents cancer, helps you detox metals, helps increase your healthy gut flora. Exactly the same calories, profoundly different effects on the body. That's so powerful. Just just for us to really kind of take a second and like let that sink in, that the whole thing with this calorie myth that all calories are created equal, this has long been banished. And you even have research in your book indicating how, you know, particular foods, you know, if somebody eats a, maybe a higher ratio of healthy dietary fats, that they'll actually yeah. lose more weight over the same amount of time, not doing any more exercise compared to people who are eating a higher yeah. carbohydrate yeah. diet with same calories. Yeah, exactly. So exactly. So what we now know is that certain calories raise insulin. Carbohydrates predominantly, mostly grains or flour particularly, and sugar or anything that turns to sugar. And that fat doesn't raise insulin. So if you take, for example, a type one diabetic, this is an easy example for people to understand. They don't make insulin. Their pancreas shut down. These people are eating 10,000 calories a day. They're not getting a pound. They're losing weight 
eating 10,000 calories a day, right? Because they have no insulin and insulin's required to store the fat. And they're eating carbs, they're eating sugar, they're eating fat, whatever, they're eating whatever, but they still can't gain weight because they have no insulin. When you eat carbohydrates, you spike insulin and it stores fat. It slows your metabolism, it locks the fat in the fat cells, it makes you hungry. When you eat fat, you don't produce insulin. So if you reduce carbs dramatically and you increase fat, you can't combine them because that's deadly. I call that sweet fat. You actually will increase your metabolism by about three to 400 calories a day. That's like running an hour a day without getting off the couch, mm. even if you're eating the same amount of calories. And this study has been done. Uh, in fact, uh, last week in the um, Journal of the American Medical Association, there was an amazing article about ketogenic diets and type 2 diabetes and weight loss, showing that when you dramatically increase fat in the diet, you correct all the cardiovascular risk factors, you increase the speed of your metabolism, you cause far more weight loss. In type 2 diabetics, you get them off insulin, off their medications, and their blood sugars are better than when they were on medication. And I see this all the time. We're at Cleveland Clinic, and we've run pilots where we've taken the most treatment-resistant diabetics they're on tons of meds, on insulin. We get them off all of that in eight weeks, and, and their blood sugars are far better and almost normal compared to the ones when they were on the drugs. So we have the ability to, to actually show how this is working. And there's a big study going on now at Harvard. It's a $12 million study funded independently by a philanthropist who wants to show this. And it's, they're locking people in a resort. They're feeding them either a very high-fat diet, very low-carb, or the opposite, low-fat, low high-carb. And they're measuring what happens on the same amount of calories. And they're seeing what they take in, what their metabolism is. And the data is just so compelling. And yet the truth is, Sean, that every doctor, nutritionist, public health association, government, food industry, all still say the mantra, eat less, exercise more. It's based on outdated science and it's harmful for people because it blames the victim. It's your fault, you're fat, just eat less, exercise more. Well, if your brain's hijacked, Willpower is a fiction. You know, you can't, right? Right. You know, there is, well, first of all, you know, I'm thinking about even the American uh, Diabetic Association, you know, the recommendations for nutrition, and they're literally telling people to eat foods that can spike insulin. Yeah. And the reality is this. And so, by the way, this is going to, you know, I've got to have a little controversy here today because, okay. you know, there's films out there like What the Health, right? Oh, yeah. Well, there's a... There's a, a licensed propaganda movie. A licensed physician saying, you know what, diabetes is not caused by sugar; it's caused by fat intake. All right. So before I see you, like, ah, let me. All right. So here's the thing. Listen, guys. This is what I want you to do. Make sure to put to pick up Dr. Hyman's new book, Food. What the heck should I eat? Because let me tell you this: all of us, everybody listening, all of us, our family, we understand. There's a lot of conflicting information out there. And there's a lot of different choices. And there are a lot of things that are right. And there are also some things that are pretty dangerous that are considered to be right. And so what he's doing is taking the best of each of these fields, whether it's vegetarian food, whether it's paleo food, whether it's a ketogenic approach. And he's looking at, like, let's actually look at the data. Let's have a talk about it. And also <laughs> use our rational common yeah. sense in the mix, you know. So uh, before we get to the controversy, I want to know what inspired you personally to write this. I know for me, you know, this is one of the things we work on here with the show is drilling down and getting to the heart of the matter. So what was the inspiration for you? Well, I, you know, the inspiration is I've been studying nutrition for 40 years. I read tens and thousands of papers. I've treated tens of thousands of patients. And the question that always comes up is what should I eat? 
Yeah. People just are confused. They don't know. They don't understand. And they're making bad choices, not because they don't want to do the right thing, because they just don't know. And I think there's so much conflicting information out there. You know, one day eggs are good, bad, then they're good. One day steak is bad, then it's good. One day butter's bad, then it's good. One day oatmeal's good, then it's bad. It's like enough to make anybody crazy and just say, I heck with it, I give up, and I'm going to eat whatever I want. The truth is, we know a lot. When you combine the full body of scientific literature, not just cherry-picking studies that support your point of view, and you look at the clinical picture, which you know, I have a rare opportunity because I've been testing metabolic rates and nutritional status and blood tests and cholesterol and cardiovascular risk factors for 30 years and using diet and food to manipulate those numbers and to affect the quality of people's health. So I've seen this. It's not just some crazy idea I have that I read in a book. It's actually based on experience plus common sense plus sort of a sense of our evolutionary biology and what makes sense. Does it make sense for us to consume a thousand times more refined vegetable oils than we did 100 years ago? Probably not. Does it make sense for us to co consume, you know, 150 pounds of sugar when we maybe had 22 teaspoons of sugar a year when we we're out hunting gathering? Probably not, right? These are just common sense things. So you combine all those things, and I really felt like people needed to, to get a book where they could go one-stop shopping and look at each category of the foods we eat, meat, poultry, fish, dairy, vegetables, fruit, nuts, seeds, beans, grains, sweeteners, sugars, beverages, and know what to choose in each of those categories based on, one, what's the science, what it does to your body, the effects on the planet, on human rights, and on our greater societies. So you can make an educated choice about eating food that's good for you, good for the planet, and good for the world. And I think that's really the goal of this book is very simple, very clear, you know, addressing all the key topics of controversy. So if you've ever said, what about blah, it's in the book. Because mm -hmm. I've asked, been asked these questions so many times, so I know the questions that people have. And I've sifted through the science and made it really simple and clear. So by the end, you have resources of where to go. Let's say you want to find the cheap grass-fed beef online. Where do you go? Let's say you want to know which vegetables should you eat organic or not and what matters. Where, here's where you go to find out. And I go through all that in the book, and it's a, hopefully a, a guide that people can use forever. You can keep it in your kitchen, you can keep it with you when you go to the grocery store, you can share it with your friends and family. It's really, for me, I feel like my favorite book I've ever written because it gives people a holistic view of food and nutrition, and it also includes some of the political, social, environmental aspects as well. Right, exactly, yeah, and that was very uh, enlightening to see as well. So that's what I wanna talk about is Let's, let's jump back now and look at this controversy, right? When we have a physician out there who's, you know, sharing this propaganda, something that is like just this is totally against human physiology, saying that it's fat that's causing diabetes. So let's talk about that. You have a section in here talking about fats and oils. So where did this, like, insane information? And by the way, let's start with the coconut thing. Right. Coconut <laughs> was slammed in the media a little while ago. It was everywhere. People yeah. posting me, Sean, what do you think about this? Yeah. So let's talk about saturated fat and the truth about whether or not it's fat that's really bad for you or whether it's this issue with insulin. Yeah, well, that's a great question. You know, um, yeah, <laughs> it's, it's such a controversy. And I think, you know, what you said in that movie, what the health was. You know, a guy in a white coat who seems like an intelligent man who's a trained physician with a license says sugar and carbohydrates have nothing to do with diabetes or obesity. And another guy in the movie says, Garth Davis says, carbohydrates can't be stored. Only fat can be stored. 
Now, this is just basic biochemistry. I mean, maybe they missed their biochemistry class. And the reason they <laughs> believe this is not based on science. It's based on dogma. So you can't let your beliefs and your dogma overtake science and disrupt your point of view. I don't have a particular belief. You know, I've been a vegetarian, a vegan. I've been paleo. I've been everything in between. And, you know, I, I try to understand what works. I'm, I'm curious about what really works. Now, this whole issue about fat, you know, it's, I wrote a whole book called Eat Fat, Get Thin, where I address this in detail. Yeah. But the issue is really how do, we, how do we understand what happens when you eat fat and sugar? We touched on it. But if you eat fat, it seems logical that fat makes you fat, right? It's the same word. It looks the same when you cut it open. And it seems like if you, it has more calories and carbs and protein. So logically, if you eat less fat, you're going to lose weight. Problem is biology is not so simple. Yeah. And when, when you eat fat, you actually stimulate metabolism. You cut your hunger. You release fat from the fat cells. It's called lipolysis. You actually stimulate your metabolism to burn 300 calories more a day. Whereas if you eat carbs and sugar and starch, even a lot of grains, you raise your insulin. And insulin is the key hormone that's driving almost all chronic disease, from cancer to heart disease to diabetes to Alzheimer's um, and, and, and even things like depression. So we have to understand that as long as we have high insulin levels, we're going to be we're going to be struggling to to lose weight and to feel healthy and reverse disease. So that's why this whole movement towards higher fat diets is happening. In fact, even the Dietary Guidelines Committee removed any upper limit on fat, and they said cholesterol is not an issue anymore. They're still restricting saturated fat. And here's the problem: you asked about coconut oil. I did a I did a, a Facebook live on coconut oil. There was like over a million and a half views, and I'm like, holy cow, people are so confused. Yeah. And you know, you've got the American Heart Association, which, by the way, gets most of its money from the food industry and the pharma industry, as well as the American Diabetic Association. The American Nutrition Dietetic Association gets 40% of its funding from the processed food industry. I mean, they're the ones giving us nutritional advice. Right. So when the American Heart Association put out this report, they said coconut oil is bad because it has saturated fat. Now, here's the problem with that logic. There's never been a single study that's ever proved that coconut oil causes heart disease. It's guilt by association. So this all came back 50 years ago or more from this guy Ansel Keys who said, let's study a few countries and see who gets what and what they're eating and maybe we can find out the cause of heart disease. Well, he found out that people ate more fat and saturated fat had more heart disease. Turns out he left out a lot of countries that disproved his theory, like France, that ate butter and cream, like it was going out of style, and they had the lowest heart disease risks, right? Yeah. And then never really proved it. And then, and then that became the meme, and he was a very powerful figure and actually convinced the world of his point of view, which turned out to be wrong. And then we moved on to the late 60s when two nutrition scientists at Harvard and doctors were paid by the sugar industry, the equivalent of $50,000, to publish a study in the New England Journal, which at that point didn't require a conflict of interest statement, to show that fat was the enemy and sugar was was fine. Hmm. Well, that went on. The guy that guy went on to run the government's dietary guidelines committee on the first one under George McGovern, and that led to this whole era of low fat. And then we got the food pyramid, and we went in this whole spiral. And if you look at the statistics, you see that the, when we came out with the food pyramid, the guidelines, the rate of obesity and diabetes skyrocketed like a hockey stick. Yep. And now we're kind of turning the tide back a little bit. It's very hard. And I think most people still believe that fat is bad. They eat skim milk, low-fat yogurt, low-fat um, foods, low-fat salad dressing. And this is really dangerous. 
Now, the, the key thing to remember is you cannot add fat to your diet if you're still eating starch and sugar, right? A little bit, okay. But if the majority of your diet is grains and starch and sugar, it's deadly. So I would really never, 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 never do that. Coconut oil is something that does raise cholesterol. So their view is if you have saturated fat, it raises cholesterol. Cholesterol causes heart disease. <coughs> cholesterol causes heart disease, and you shouldn't actually eat anything that raises your LDL cholesterol. Well, that whole theory has kind of been broken. And here's, here's how, a couple of reasons. One, it was a major study actually done by the guy who was trying to prove that saturated fat was bad, Ansel Keys, <laughs> and I got another guy, a researcher, I think from University of Minnesota, back in the late 60s and 70s. This kind of study could never be done today because it's unethical. They took 9,000 people who were basically institutionalized in mental institutions and they did a, an experiment on them without their consent, and they gave half of them saturated fat and half of them corn oil. And then they followed them, which is almost impossible to do this kind of study anywhere else because people live in their free world, they eat whatever they want, you can't control their diets, so they controlled their diets. And they found that the group that had the corn oil actually lowered the LDL cholesterol. That was good, but for every 30-point drop in LDL cholesterol, there was a 22% increase in heart attacks and death. So the lower your cholesterol, the worse you were. And the saturated fat group did way better. They didn't publish a study. Why? Because it contradicted their entire worldview. So they stuffed it in a basement. And it wasn't until last year that researchers from the National Institutes of Health dug it up and actually published it and was like, what? You know? This is so, sounded like a movie right now, Mark. Oh my God, Malcolm Gladwell did a great, uh, a great uh, revisionist history podcast on this. It was really quite good. Oh, and then man. of course, we have 17 meta-analyses of studies showing there's no link between saturated fat and heart disease. None, from observational studies, from interventional studies, from blood levels of fatty acid studies. Nobody can find a link when they actually looked at it. It was just all an idea. Yeah. And, and so now we still have this idea that saturated fat is bad and the American Heart Association is still stuck on that. And so that's why they say coconut oil is bad because it's saturated fat. Saturated fat raises LDL. That causes heart attack. That theory has just been debunked. You know what? I think at some point in human history, maybe 10, 20 years from now, maybe a little bit longer, this is going to become a movie. And it's going to star Nicolas Cage, for sure. And it's just like national treasure. Somebody's yeah. digging around in research and they find this old, wait a minute. It was they a conspiracy. Did. The they whole did. time. They found this old file. It's <laughs> like nuts. dig up in the basement. That's nuts. You know, but uh, the good news is, again, is that, you know, folks like you who are out here and sharing the reality of the situation and also pointing people towards better options. So I want to ask you about, because also with coconut oil specifically, and we talk about saturated fats, uh, we're, we're, we're not including the fact that this is from coconut oil. Like, so what we tend to do is we isolate nutrients versus yeah. the food. So let's right. talk a little bit about that issue. So, yeah. So, the, I mean, first of all, going back to the coconut, there, there's, there's populations that lived in the South Pacific, 60% of their calories were coconut oil. And they had no heart disease, obesity, diabetes, nothing, right? So the evidence for this coconut oil thing is bad. Now, the coconut oil also has many of their benefits. It's got polyphenols, antioxidants in virgin coconut oil. And the coconut oil also has something called MCT oil, which is a powerful metabolism booster, brain uh, activator, and metabolism sort of activator. It's really, really an impressive compound. 
So coconut oil overall has a lot of benefits. And I think that, you know, we really shouldn't vilify it. Uh, and I think the whole saturated fat thing with it just doesn't really make sense. And yet some people genetically have a harder time with saturated fats. That's true. But as a whole, we're, we're really okay with that. So there's actually a term, isn't there, for when we're looking at studying nutrients instead of the real yeah. food? Yeah, we call it nutritionism. Yeah. So we, we get focused on like saturated fat or refined or like PUFAs or on a mineral like magnesium or or some a fiber, right? And we get and this is what the food industry does. It, it works for them, right? If we say fiber is good, whole grains are good, well, they'll make whole grain cookie crisp cereal. Now, hmm. that is not healthy. It's got 22 <laughs> teaspoons of sugar in it, right? Honey nut Cheerios sounds good, right? Honey nut, you know, all these right, healthy right, things, right? right? It's got more sugar in a serving than three Chips Ahoy cookies. <laughs> That's crazy. It's not, right? it's, it's like a, it's a cereal that, this is what they say, it's Jerry Seinfeld. It's not a cereal that's like cookies. It is cookies. Right, it is cookies. It's 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 basically breakfast. Actually, not really breakfast. It's dessert masquerading as breakfast. Exactly, exactly. Except tricks. They say it right out in in front. Like, hey, we got you, right? Trick or treat. So, right. Uh, yeah. Let's let's shift gears now because um, you know this is a, an amazing community who is really uh, about. Uh, elevating themselves, um, becoming educated in nutrition. We've got folks who are, you know, uh, vegetarian, following vegetarian protocols, you know, paleo, ketogenic. And here we're very inclusive and just looking at how can we all work to be the best version of ourselves. And so collectively, what I want to point people to and to talk about is something that we can all agree upon that you talk about here in the book and you bring some serious highlights that, you know, again, things that oftentimes we don't consider in vegetables all right so there's actually some potential oh we got a special guest here so <laughs> like kitty this is yoda yoda oh yoda is uh, hopefully you guys can see the video he looks like yoda if you go like this he goes oh, oh definitely love you, i do <laughs> <laughs> so oh uh, man i totally forgot what i was gonna say yoda is so cute oh oh my goodness all right so vegetables right this category of foods this is something we can collectively agree on nobody's like you know what vegetables are terrible for you. But there are some things that we need to be concerned about. So let's talk about this category and why you put a whole section in here of the book on it. Well, I, I wrote a section on every group of food we eat. Like you said, I'm not focusing on nutrients. I'm not writing a chapter on saturated fat or on you know carbohydrates. I'm, I'm writing chapters on the food that we eat, meat, chicken, fish, poultry, fruits, vegetables, grains, right? So I want to actually make it simple. Because yeah. we don't eat, we don't eat ingredients. We eat food. Right. And in terms of vegetables, uh, the sad thing is that most Americans don't eat much vegetables. The number one and two vegetables we eat are potatoes yep. in the form of French fries and tomatoes in the form of ketchup. Now, neither of those should be considered vegetables because they're one full of harmful compounds. The, the ketchup is mostly sugar, and the French fries are deep fried in processed oils, yeah. and that turns into dangerous carcinogenic chemicals like acrylamide, and it's fat and carbs, which makes your insulin go up and gain weight. So it's just, these are not vegetables we wanna be eating. And in fact, the most common vegetables are the least healthy, and the most healthy are the least eaten. So we kinda of flipped that upside down. And yeah. in, the, in the book, I talk about how to choose the right vegetables, and I also talk about how to be aware of where, where the contaminants are. I work for the Environmental Working Group, I'm on the board, and we've created a guide called the Dirty Dozen and Clean 15. Dirty Dozen is these dozen fruits and vegetables you wanna stay away from if they're not organic. These Clean 15 
probably not such a big deal. They're not so contaminated. But strawberries, like, forget it. You never want to eat a strawberry if it's not organic. And I go through that in the book, and I go through really what we should be eating. Certain, certain vegetables may not be as healthy, like alfalfa sprouts, people think are a health food, but they contain a, a toxic uh, carcinogenic compound. So you don't want to consume a lot of alfalfa sprouts. Or white button mushrooms are in salads. They have a toxin also in there you want to be aware of. But most of the time, most vegetables are pretty good. Now, starchy vegetables, depending on your metabolism, may not be as good for you. If you're a type 2 diabetic, you don't want to be eating a lot of potatoes and big starchy vegetables. But if you're not, those are great to include in your diet. Yes. You know, I'm so glad that you focused on this and really kind of pulling back the, the curtain and really looking at this because, and this is something that we think about, but we might not really, really get. Number one, vegetable consumed potatoes, all right? Yeah. Right? Barely, <laughs> barely really a vegetable. Well, and then we've got, and no, and then listen, Mark, this is so crazy. Like, you literally detailed my childhood here. So you got all right. potatoes, number one, ketchup. Literally, <laughs> literally, I would tell people that I'm part ketchup. When I was a kid, I'm like, you know, I'm kind of, I'm, I'm black and I'm white and I'm part ketchup, you know, like I'd, I'd like, you know, mix up these things and I'd be like, and I'm black part, and white and red. I'm part orange as well. <laughs> right. I'd say red. I'm see you. How'd you know you were there? You must've been there. Black and and I'd say I'm orange because of all the cheese now. So that's number one. Number two is oh, ketchup. By the way, wait, 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 cheese. You said orange because of the cheese. So orange cheese, the, 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 the slices of cheese mm -hmm. that we all grew up on, the government doesn't allow the companies that sell it to call it cheese. Because it has to be more than 51% cheese to call it cheese. So they call it slices, American slices. Look oh, at the label next Lord, time. It's guys. illegal to call it cheese because it's mostly ingredients that aren't actually food. Nuts, man. Kraft, macaroni, and whatever, right? <laughs> All right, so listen. All right, so that's, those are the top two. Number three is sweet corn, which that was, again, that was on the menu. And four is onions, which is surprising. Onions are okay. And then five is, you put the inglorious um, iceberg lettuce. And so this is something that gets me, you know, people like, well, I eat salads. I eat That's salad water. every day. What kind of salad are you actually eating? You know, and so this was my life, minus the lettuce. Yeah. I didn't really mess with that. But this iceberg is, lettuce. yeah, <laughs> you know, so again, and oh, guys, I got to, I got to point this out too. And this is what you highlighted here when you mentioned, so first of all, you pointed out that Farming is actually one of the most dangerous occupations. You know, the folks oh, yeah. that are dealing with pesticides and herbicides or denticides and the increased incidence of kidney, pancreatic, prostate cancers. Mm -hmm. And in Parkinson's 2000, disease, yeah. crazy stuff. Um, 2015, funded by the EPA, found that consumers who often or always bought organic had significantly less insecticide in their urine, even though they ate 70% more produce than people who bought the conventionally grown fruits and vegetables. Yeah. Nuts. Exactly. It's yeah. literally coming out of our bodies. I mean, honestly, if if we were food, we wouldn't be safe to eat. We're so polluted. Wow, that's deep. You do fat biopsies, and you look at people's storage of pesticides, DDT, DDE, dioxins, mm. I mean, atrazine. I mean, it's, it's terrible what's in us. I mean, it's frightening. That's why I take saunas all the time and take a lot of cruciferous vegetables and why I take things to supplements to help me detoxify because we are a toxic waste dump. That's nuts, Mark. I can't believe you you just said that. It, we wouldn't be good to eat. So I want that's a question for everybody to think if about. we were food, we would not be safe to eat. Would you eat <laughs> yourself? All right? That's the big takeaway from today. Ask that question daily as you're taking care and eating good food. Are you, it's like the, you can, the cannibals have a list. You know, they like 
don't eat American. You know? <laughs> it's like, don't eat tuna because it's got too much mercury. <laughs> All right, so let's shift gears here and talk about the thing that usually is coupled with vegetables, which is fruit. You know, when I went to a traditional university and I was taught about the food pyramid at this point, this is when I was in school, and, um, you know, we were told to eat, I believe it was five to seven servings of fruits and vegetables. And that is pretty vague, right? Because it could just be, you know, four servings of fruits and one vegetable. So let's talk about fruit and some of the kind of uh, really just kind of jarring issues with fruit. So let's start with the conversation about fructose. Oh, well, okay. So people go, well, fructose is in high fructose corn syrup. And is anywhere between 55 to 70 or 80% fructose in sweeteners that are used in most foods in America today. And it's not combined like in sugar, regular sugar is glucose and fructose that's together in a double bond. This is free fructose. So it's absorbed very quickly. It goes straight to the liver. It causes fatty liver. It causes inflammation, causes weight gain. It's very harmful. And we are consuming huge amounts of this in everything. It's in it's in salad dressing. It's in ketchup. It's in bread. I mean, they put high fructose corn syrup in bread for Christ's sake. So that's really the problem. It's not the fructose that's in fruit because it comes in a package. It comes in a package of fiber, of vitamins, minerals, antioxidants. So it's okay to eat it. The problem is what fruit, when, and how much, and for who. So if you're a type two diabetic, and you eat, you know, a pound of grapes, you're going to be in trouble right? If you're an athlete and you're consuming more fruit, you'll probably handle it fine. And it's important to say fruit, not fruit juice, right? You look at Coca-Cola and Pepsi bought Odwalla and Naked Juice. And now you go to look at one of those in the airport, it looks like a healthy green juice or vegetable or fruit juice. You look at the label, it's like drinking two Coca-Colas in terms of the amount of sugar that's in there. So it's not necessarily fruit in juice or fruit in smoothies, which can be, I mean, how many apples can you eat, right? You can drink five apples in a glass of apple juice, but you're not going to eat five apples. And then you got all the fiber and nutrients to prevent the absorption. So unless you're really overweight, diabetic, you want to keep your fruit to a minimum then, Uh, you know, and eat the low glycemic fruits. I talk about what are the high sugar fruits, low sugar fruits, like berries, they're great. They're full of antioxidants and you can eat plenty of them, but you have to be careful if you're, if you're overweight, have type two diabetes. Yes. You know what? And you also did the same thing with the ranking of some of the top consumed fruits. So the number one for Americans, quote, fruit is orange juice. All right. Yeah. Which is bananas. It's like drinking soda. Same thing for me. That was my number one go to. And um, let's see. And also you, you cited a study in here linking it to diabetes as well. And next on the list is bananas, which we've talked about several times. Very hybridized. Uh, and, and, you know, Recently, I had a conversation about this on another show, and the host is from Barbados, and he was like, you know what? I never thought about this. You're so right. We had some kind of, well, we just thought it was normal that there would be bigger seeds in our bananas, right? And right. a lot of folks aren't, aren't aware that the bananas that we see, even if they're organic in conventional, you know, in our conventional grocery yeah. stores, have been hybridized to the point that they can't reproduce on their own anymore, yeah. you know? Yeah. And yeah, so, you go down in the South America, you see little red bananas and little t- funny little bananas. It's like very different bananas. Yeah, yeah, it's a lot of work. You know, we want it now. We want the, the sugar bomb and the so-called, you know, the potassium hit. But what I want to talk about uh, in regards to fruit is uh, the fact that, number one, of course, we talked about what's going on there with, uh, with insulin. But I want to talk about 
how we actually use them, right? So with fruit, look, we just mentioned banana. It's not saying that you can't ever have a banana, guys. No, I mean banana versus Doritos. Go for the banana every day. Yes. And so, what do we? What's a more advantageous approach? Knowing that you know potentially we can get into some issues with the, you know, our glycemic yeah. response with fruit. What what should we target, and what should we be aware of? Well, the truth is, we should be eating not like five to nine, but more like nine to eleven servings of vegetables and fruit. And it shouldn't be fruits and vegetables. It should be vegetables and fruit. And, you know, depending, yeah. again, depending on your own individual unique needs, if you're an athlete, if you're healthy, you can consume more fruit. If you are a diabetic, if you're overweight, if you have a lot of sugar issues, I mean, you can binge on fruit. I mean, I used to have a diabetic patient who used to eat a plum and his blood sugar would skyrocket. So you have to see what works for you. Uh, hopefully soon we're going to have an amazing uh, new technology where you basically put a little device on your skin, it reads up to your iPhone, and it'll tell you exactly what your blood sugar is when you eat anything. So you'll know immediately what happens. And I, I, I can't wait for that day because I think people are going to know, gosh, I didn't realize when I ate blah, 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 this is what happened. Or when I ate this, it was actually good. So I think that's, that's a really good thing to think about. All right. Let's jump over here now and really get to the meat. Yeah. Uh, meat sans potatoes. And talk I wonder about, when you get to the meat of the pro subject here. And talk about meat. So this is a you know, very, very controversial subject. And you hi highlight so many incredible studies and looking at, like, is this, a actual, is this actually an issue? Is this the causative agent when we see increases of cancer? You know, this is one of the big things. If you eat too much red, red meat, it's going to cause, you know, heart disease, all these kind of things. So let's talk about this and make this like the definitive answer on this subject matter. Well, well, look, Sean, you know, like you, I'm sure you want this too, but I want to live to be like 120 and be healthy. Like, yeah. I don't want to do something stupid based on some principle or dogma that's going to make me sick. So, yeah, yeah I, I, I was aware of the issues around meat, and meat's been vilified for a long time. First, because it has saturated fat. Saturated fat causes heart disease, so cut out the saturated fat. That's why milk, I mean, my meat, meat consumption has dramatically decreased in this country over the last 40, 50 years. We've had a lot more chicken, a lot less meat. That may not be a good thing. Second is, you know, when I went to try to look at this, I, I said, okay, I, I'm gonna, I'm a doctor, I'm a scientist, I'm gonna go figure this out. So I got all the best papers on meat that I could find. I had researchers dig up all these papers, I printed them out, I, they were stacked high. I took them to a hotel room and I locked myself in for a week and I read everything. And I'm like, all right. So and I didn't read the headlines, I didn't read the abstracts, I read the methods, I read who they did the studies on, what their characteristics were, what the issues were. And what was interesting, there were really three issues that came up in that process. Mm -hmm. First was eating meat or not can be a moral issue. You know, I've had Buddhist monks as patients. If they don't want to kill any animals, fine. Yeah. You know, that's fine. And they can figure out how to be a healthy vegan or vegetarian. And I teach them how to do that. The second is environmental. And absolutely, our factory farming of animals is the one of the worst things that's happening in our society today. One, because... It is destroying our environment. It's depleting our soils, which we need. If we don't, if we don't, if we only have desert and dust on this planet, we're dead. Second, the soils are needed to sequester carbon, which, if not, it goes into the environment and causes climate change. Goes in the oceans and acidifies the oceans, kills the phytoplankton, which produce half our oxygen. So we're going to suffocate. And the water also is required to be sequestered in the soil. If you have organic matter in the soil, it can hold tons of water. If you're growing food on dust and fertilizing it and putting all these chemicals on, 
It can't hold water, which is why we see mudslides and why we see droughts and why we see these crazy weather patterns. It's because of this. Uh, this actually, it's a kind of by digression, but we had 60 million buffalo in this country, which kept you know the soils healthy and kept the water in the soils and prevented droughts. And then we killed 60 million buffalo and there were like 300 left. We got the big dust bowl in the 30s as a result of that. The straw almost destroyed America. So we're in that situation. And then, of course, there's runoff into the rivers that destroys the waterways. There's pesticides and insecticides that get loaded in the environment in our bodies. And it creates climate change. It uses one-fifth of our fossil fuels. So it depletes our, our one, 70% of the world's fresh water supplies is used to grow animals for human consumption. This is a big problem. So from the point of view of factory farmed animals, no, we shouldn't be eating those because it harms the planet, harms us, and in fact has much different nutrients in it. it has far less antioxidants, glutathione peroxidase, catalase, less minerals, and it also has a different profile of fat. Wild meat or grass-fed meat has higher levels of omega-3 fats, whereas farm-raised meat is fed corn and that has and soybean oil, and that has higher levels of of the omega-6 fats, which can be inflammatory. Plus, these cows eat ground-up animal parts. They eat feces. They eat candy. I mean, there was a oh, giant man. truck, a giant truck that fell over on the highway somewhere. It was filled with, you know, out-of-date Skittles that they were bringing to feed the cows. So there's all kinds of stuff that we shouldn't. And plus, there's hormones, antibiotics. There's pesticides in the meat. It's so much less Wait, healthy Mark, than we got to We got to talk about this. We got to talk about the candy, all right? So we've said this before, it's not you are what you eat, it's what you eat ate. And yeah. literally, like, we know what candy does to us, but this truck spill, and you talked about it, and this was all over the news. You know, I see guys in yeah. here in the studio even shaking their head, remembering this coating over the freeway. Well, it was the freeway, right? <laughs> Red Skittles. Red Skittles. Be, and they were on their way to get fed to some some cattle. Yeah. Nuts. Yeah. Nuts. Yeah. It is pretty nuts. So, so yes, from the environmental point yeah. of view, Absolutely the wrong thing. But let's just take meat separately and look at the third issue, which is health. What do these studies show about the effect of meat on health? And you know, there was a period of time where a lot of studies were done, we call these population studies. They can't prove cause and effect. They basically ask people every year, what did you eat? And then they say, what diseases do you have? And they correlate it and see if there's a connection. Now, there may be a connection, there may not be a connection. For example, smoking, they did this kind of study and they found there was a 10 to 20 to one risk of cancer. With the meat studies, they might find a 20 or 30% increased risk of something, which is not really telling you anything in the context of a type of study that can't prove cause and effect. And when they looked at, when I looked at the characteristics of the meat eaters in these studies, it was like 500,000 people over many years, they were unhealthy because they were eating meat in an era where meat was bad. So if you ate meat, you didn't give a crap about your health. So you didn't exercise. You smoked, you drank, you didn't eat fruits and vegetables, you ate processed food, you ate more sugar and starch, and you weighed more, and you ate 100 calories more. Of course you had more disease. That's why these people seem to have more risk of disease. And this is shown over and over again. And when you look at interventional studies, where they actually give people a paleo diet, they actually do better. All their cardiovascular risk markers get better. All their inflammation gets better. Their weight goes down. So, you know, we have to really look at the science here. And then, of course, there are studies looking at meat eaters and vegetarians who shop at health food stores. Both of their risk goes down in half because they're eating a healthy overall diet. And the meat in the context of an overall healthy diet is not an issue. So I think we have to really kind of rethink our whole negative view of meat. And then, of course, there's the issue of, 
you know, of whether, you know, meat causes cancer. And this was from the World Health Organization and you shouldn't eat meat because it causes cancer. Well, it didn't find that meat causes cancer. What it found was that processed meat causes cancer. And it was a 20% increase in risk of colon cancer if you ate bacon and hot dogs and bologna and salami. What did the study actually show? The studies actually show that there was a 20% risk, which means your background risk of getting colon cancer, 5%. Hmm. When you eat bacon, four pieces every day, your whole life, your risk goes from 5 to 6%. Now, <laughs> unless you plan on eating bacon every day, four pieces your whole life, probably shouldn't do that. But a piece <laughs> of bacon here and there is going to have a nominal increase in your risk. And it's we're talking about a 1% absolute risk increase. So we shouldn't be eating tons of hot dogs and processed meat, I agree. But the truth is that the risk is, is overstated and amplified. I mean, I was sitting with a friend uh, and another friend on a panel at a, at a conference. One was a paleo uh, doc and the other was a vegan cardiologist who was low fat. And they're like arguing and fighting. I'm like, listen guys, you know, we're all friends. You're paleo, you're vegan, and I must be a pegan. And I was like, oh, that's funny. And everybody laughed. And then I was like, wait a minute, there's a lot of common sense in that. And I'm like, it's not extreme. It looks at, in each category, how do you choose what to eat? If you're going to eat grains, what are the healthiest grains? If you're going to eat meat, what's the healthiest meat? How much of each should you eat? The truth is that, that you look at those two camps and they agree on most stuff. One, we shouldn't be eating a diet high in sugar and starch. Two, we should be eating mostly vegetables and plant foods. Three, we should be eating good quality fats. Four, we should not eat chemicals and processed foods and hormones, antibiotics, GMO, and crap. And you know, five, we should, if we are raising animals, we should use sustainable practices. We should use regenerative agriculture. We should humanely treat the animals. If we're consuming fish, we should be sustainably harvesting them or, or sustainably raising them in, in fish farms that aren't toxic. And we should eat, you know, uh, if we're going to eat grains, you probably don't want to eat a lot of the inflammatory starchy grains. You want to eat more things like buckwheat and quinoa, stay away from a lot of the gluten grains. If you're eating dairy, you don't want to have factory farm dairy. You want, and, and by the way, both camps don't believe in dairy, and I'm not a big dairy fan. But if you're going to eat some dairy and you can tolerate it, it probably should be sheep or goat cheese, not cow dairy, which is full of inflammatory proteins and other factors that can be harmful. And I go through all the issues yeah. around dairy, despite the fact that our government says to consume three glasses of milk a day for everybody because it's going to prevent fractures and make your kids go strong and help you lose weight. None of those, by the way, are true. All of them have been disproved by science, not just my opinion. This is from the top scientists at Harvard who've challenged the government. And they said, well, sorry, this is what the Dairy Council says we have to put in there. So, And, and by the way, I'm not sure you know this, Sean, but uh, this fall, uh, the National Academy of Sciences published a report that was commissioned by Congress to look at the integrity of the dietary guidelines process. Do you know about this? Yeah. And they, and they essentially said uh, the dietary guidelines process is corrupt, that scientists on it are funded by the food industry, and that they've ignored huge amounts of data, like all the data on saturated fat, they completely ignore because they use the wrong databases or they don't look at it or they discard it. And, and so the guidelines we think are valid guidelines that govern yeah. all of our food policies in America are actually corrupt and wrong. So, you know, we have to really rethink all this and, and, and change the way we view uh, how we make sense of it. And that's really why I wrote Food, What the Heck Should I Eat? Because people just don't know. And I try to sift through all the, the difficulties because we hear some from scientists that can be corrupt. We hear from the government was corrupt. 
hear the media, which is looking for headlines. You know, we have the food industry giving us nonsense, like health claims, which seem to say the food is healthy because it's got whole grain cookie crisp cereal. And, and I try to make sense of it and simplify it in a way that people can just eat real food and know what to eat. Thank you so much for tuning into the show today. I hope you got a lot of value out of this. Very, very special to be able to have these conversations and to get this message out to more people. You know, it's not just about our education and our empowerment. It's really about sharing. You know, sharing is caring. So this is definitely an episode to share. You could share it out with your friends on social media. You take a screenshot of the episode. You could tag me. I'm at Sean Model and tag Dr. Hyman as well and show him some love. And of course, you can send this directly from the podcast app that you're listening on. Now, listen, we're just getting warmed up. We've got some more epic interviews and masterclasses. So make sure to stay tuned. Take care. Have an amazing day. And I'll talk with you soon. And for more after the show, make sure to head over to themodelhealthshow.com. That's where you can find all of the show notes. You can find transcriptions, videos for each episode. And if you've got a comment, you can leave me a comment there as well. And please make sure to head over to iTunes and leave us a rating to let everybody know that the show is awesome. And I appreciate that so much. And take care. I promise to keep giving you more powerful, empowering, great content to help you transform your life. Thanks for tuning in.